Welcome to the Crossview Church Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy the message this morning. For more information, visit us at mycrossview.com. Isn't it good to be together this morning and to worship? I'm so thankful for those songs that we sing. Uh, and they are uh, perfect in, in, uh, in preparing our hearts for, for this morning and what the Lord wants to do. Uh, we sing, Lead Me to the Cross. And I love that song, just the, the cry of our heart for God to lead us right to the place of his greatest act of love and sacrifice, his invitation to brand new life. And then we followed it up by singing, Lord, I Need You, a recognition that we are in desperate need of God uh, in all things, and so I'm thankful for the way that we have uh, entered into our time this morning. I also want to start off by saying that I am, I've been very blessed uh, by the way that God has been working in people's hearts and, and minds and lives over the past few weeks. Uh, we have been uh, seeking after God pretty strongly uh, for him to move in some meaningful ways, and he has done that. I've had so many messages of stories of God doing some pretty incredible things from really significant times of, of intimate prayer and worship, uh, a sense of renewal in different things, some dreams, uh, healing of past hurts, and more. It's been incredible to hear some of what God has been doing uh, in these past couple of weeks, and I just want to share that with you so that you can be encouraged. The Lord is at work, amen? And uh, so that we also might uh, enter into day with just expectation and ask what might he have for us? This morning, what might he have for me? Am I opening my heart and mind and am I listening to what the Lord is doing? So it's exciting stuff. And in, uh, before we continue, I just want to pause here and just pray for us. So let's just pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you will again move powerfully this morning. I feel like you already have been at work in our time of worship uh, reminding us of what you've done for us and our need of you. And so as we sing these words, we pray uh, and as we spend time in, in worship and prayer, I pray this, that these will not just be things we say, but things that we experience in your presence, a, rec- a recognition of our deep need of you, and a moment to pause and be grateful for what you've done for us. And so we just ask that you continue to move in our gathering this morning uh, in really uh, powerful ways. We pray in your name. Amen. So as we jump into our psalm for today, we're in a summer psalm series. Uh, I want to do something that I've not done before in in previous series, which is we're going to revisit a psalm that we looked at several years ago. Um, But I think it's really important for us to do this uh, because you'll see why here in a moment. In our psalm series, we've been leaning into uh, God's call for a renewed connection with his spirit as he breathes in new life. Uh, into his church and his people for his purposes. That's what we've been leaning into here in our psalm series. So just a quick review of the last couple of weeks. Our first week, in week one, we, we looked at Psalm 107. And we looked at what God can do when we start with a simple yes uh, when he calls us, or a simple yes uh, to him. It's sometimes that's difficult because we, we like to know the whole plan, but sometimes it's probably good if we don't know the whole plan that God has in mind, right? A simple yes. And then God does things in us and through us that we couldn't even imagine. Psalm 107 talks about God doing incredible things for his people. It talks about how he broke down prison gates of bronze and he cut apart the bars of iron. Powerful metaphors that God can do things that we think are impossible. In week number two, we talked about how a key element of renewal movements is a willingness to be honest before God and to repent and confess. 
knowing that God is faithful to forgive, that he cleanses us and fills us with his spirit. And last week we looked at Psalm 16 and we talked about another key aspect of renewal with God, which is having confidence in who God is, what he has done, what he can do, and what he will do. We looked at Psalm 16 last week. And so this morning we're going to focus on a psalm that I love. It's, a, it's called it's Psalm 97. Uh, the psalm 97 packs a punch here, and you'll see right from the beginning that it's, it's very clear at, at, with, with what it's talking about. Uh, it's one of a group of psalms called the enthronement psalms, and that'll be very clear to you why here in about two seconds. So let's read this together, and we'll take it in smaller sections. Psalm 97, we're going to read, start with verses 1 through 6. The Lord is king! Exclamation point. <laughs> Let the earth rejoice. Let the farthest coastlands be glad. Dark clouds surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire spreads ahead of him and burns up all his foes. His lightning flashes out across the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like, melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and every nation sees his glory. Whew. Talk about very clear right, right from the beginning, right? <laughs> so we, we can just stop right here. If we could just stop even in these first six verses, um, this is an incredible way to start a psalm. There's, there's no doubt about what the author is trying to communicate. It's clear right from the beginning. This psalm starts with the most significant proclamation, and it has built into it an invitation as well. I love how scripture works. We've been looking at some of the words that we find in some of these psalms all throughout, and this one is no different. The proclamation or the statement that this psalm is making is the reason that we chose to focus on Psalm 97 this morning, because it's the next step in seeing a fresh movement of God's spirit in our midst. The next step is for us to be able to boldly join the call in the first verse of this ancient song, the Lord is King. Period. <laughs> and uh, we talked about this last week, so if you didn't uh, see this last week, the word Lord here, it is the word Yahweh. So he's identifying, the author is identifying the, the covenant God of Israel here is the, is the one he's talking about. The Lord is king. Now I want to say a few words about this, a few things about this word king, because it's really, really cool. Uh, the word that's used here as king, we understand immediately the thing that might come to mind is the king, the person with the crown, right? The ruling monarch of the kingdom. Uh, and certainly this word starts with that meaning. It does reference God as the one with the crown. But the cool thing about this word is that there's more to it than just that. It wants us, and this is the invitation, that it wants us to understand or not just stop at recognizing God as a figurehead, but that God actually has some type of kingly action in our lives. So this first, uh, uh, this first word, it references God as king, the one with the crown, but it is a word that also references the job of the king. That is, to reign and to rule. So this word literally means that God is king, but he also, it's an active word, that he is also the one who reigns and rules in our life and across the world. That's also part of this word. The Lord is king. He's not just my figurehead. He's actually the one who reigns and rules in my life and in this world. 
And so to be able to say the Lord is king is a meaningful thing. We might recognize it more uh, familiar from the New Testament when, when we might hear uh, Jesus is Lord, right? So the first line of this psalm invites us to proclaim that Yahweh is king, recognizing that he is not just a figurehead, but that he actually reigns in our life and in fact throughout the entire world. One commentary said this, that the thought that God of, the God of Israel truly was the ruler of the world frequently sent psalmists into, he, this is a fun line, spasms of joy. <laughs> they could not conceive of God's reign being limited or to the cramped borders of Palestine. Think about that. This is a statement about a kingdom that goes far beyond geography uh, boundaries. The psalm gives a verbal portrait to the Lord of all the earth, taking singers and hearers imaginatively into the royal presence of God that is beyond our borders. The Lord is king. It's incredible. This, this psalm is a part, of, like I said, of a, a group of psalms called the enthronement psalms, and they all reinforce the same truth. The Lord reigns. That's the great truth uh, here in this group of psalms. <clears throat> the Lord reigns reigns. So I want to take us back to something that we've touched on before, but it's so helpful in understanding uh, this, the depth of this idea of the Lord reigning in this psalm and what it means that God reigns. And I think it'll also just make you love the Bible more because the Bible's incredible. Uh, it's, you know, we, I love the Bible, we love the Bible. You should just read it more. It's great. I know I said that last week too. It's still maybe kind of funny. Um, so I'm going to take us back to the beginning of the story in Genesis, and at the beginning of Genesis, we, we know the story, what we find at the beginning of Genesis is the story of creation. So God creates the heavens and the earth, uh, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, he defines day and night, and he creates humanity. Then, when he's done with all that creating, what does scripture say that he does? Well, it says that God rested. Uh, and so we often talk about this idea of God resting as an acknowledgement of the importance of rest and Sabbath in our life. And that is true. Those are important rhythms, important things for us to do. But there's more to this idea of God resting than, than maybe what we see at first. And it's deeply connected to these enthronement psalms and specifically Psalm 97. I, Pastor Holly and I were having a fun time talking about this this last week and the idea like that it always seemed weird to me that God needed to rest, right? Uh, we're very good at anthropomorphizing God, right? Making God like us in terms of what we think and assume about him. So I was always weird. It's like, does God need to rest? Why? <laughs> you know? Uh, so in Exodus 20, verse 11, it tells us that... Um, uh, for six days the Lord created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. So the word for rested here in Exodus is translated best as God took up something. It took up his rest. Maybe you remember, we've talked about this a bit before, but this word is that he took up his rest. Now, when we think of rest, that's an engaging, that's, uh, that word take up his rest is an engagement activity. He's actively engaging in something, which is not what we usually think of when we think of rest. We often think of rest as the disengagement of ourselves from activity so that we can recover, rejuvenate, and rest. We often think of it as disengagement with activity. But that's not what God does here when he takes up his rest. 
This is really cool. This is engagement. It's the active process of doing something. After he's done, started, after he's done with creation, he, he takes up an activity that is unique to him. And the Hebrew word for rest here is literally translated to set oneself down on something. So he's taking up this activity and the, the word could also be translated as he's setting himself down on something. And the Hebrew scholars said that when this word is applied to kings, it usually references that they take their place on their throne. Isn't this cool? <laughs> so what we see is at the end of the created work, God doesn't disengage from everything. He doesn't go binge watch Netflix and he's not scrolling through Facebook or TikTok or whatever the kids use these days, right? He, the, there's this image that God, when he's done with the created work, he engages in the activity of reigning and ruling for now, from now on forever and all time. Woo! That's what God does at the end of his creative process. Wow, amazing. So at the end of the creation narrative, after God has completed his work, he doesn't disengage. From the very beginning of the story, after God created everything, the creator looked at his work, he said it was good, and he's pictured as taking up his throne as king and reigning and ruling over all things from that day to this very day. Incredible. This is essential in understanding the story of Genesis. This is essential in understanding the work of God throughout Scripture. This is essential in understanding what Psalm 97 and the enthronement Psalms are doing, recognizing this very fact. So to say this, to be able to say this in our heart, in our mind, to make this true of ourselves, just like the psalmist is doing, to say the Lord is king and to have that context behind it. I'm not just talking, I'm not just recognizing him as a figurehead. He reigns and rules in my life and he has been the, the ruling king from the very beginning of all things. Let the furthest coastlands be glad. Dark clouds surround him. This is a metaphor that talks about he's so great that he's got to be hidden from human eyes. <laughs> Dark clouds surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire spreads ahead of him and burns up all his foes. His lightning flashes out across the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. Every nation sees his glory. God sat down to rule taking his rightful place and continues to do that. Paul affirms this in the New Testament, uh, that God is still on the throne, reigning and ruling over all things. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, we read this, For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his dear Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all things, or over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. And he continues, he made things we can't see, or things we can see and things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him, and he has existed, his, he existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. And Philippians chapter 2 Therefore God elevated him, that is Jesus, to the to place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. 
Is, is your heart stirred up here a little bit? <laughs> this is what scripture does by the power of God's spirit, right? God uh, has established his kingdom through Jesus Christ and has invited us to be a part of that. So this psalm helps us to recognize that there's no limit or end to the reign of God over all things. Can you say Jesus is Lord? Can you say the Lord is King? This is the call of scripture time and time and time again because we are really good at repeating our patterns of walking away from God, aren't we? And just this psalm, like that is such, we could end right there, I think, and walk away from here and be like, okay, I'm inspired by God. But then this psalm takes a turn and does something fantastic and very difficult for us. What Psalm 97 does next is lead us to ask some hard questions about ourselves because Psalm 97 moves into a juxtaposition between the God that we were just reminded about, his reigning and ruling, all his creative actions, everything. You stand in awe in God in these first six verses, just like we are now. And then this Psalm has a juxtaposition. It says, remember that God? (laughs) The juxtaposition is between that God and the false versions of God that we tend to hold so important in our lives. The text calls them idols. It's a quick statement, but it's very important. The very next verse, those who worship idols are disgraced. All who brag about their worthless gods, for every god must bow to him. So, this psalm is fascinating because, uh, or this verse is fascinating because it's surrounded by all the reigning and ruling of God, Yahweh. Uh, the juxtaposition is powerful because they're talking about the most worthy God, <laughs> creative, uh, reigning and ruling, and then that, everything else compared to that is worthless. The, the word worthless here, worthless gods, means of nothing, having no substance, empty, full of weakness and insignificant, but for humanity, time and time again, They will take things that are also created and put them in the place of the God we just described, an idol. Whether that's a physical idol or whether that's something else for us these days, what is that? This psalm compares this concept of worthless gods with the real king who is of of utmost importance and uh, who is on the throne and whose justice and power are so great, like we said, that he's hidden behind dark clouds. Okay, Psalm 97, whew. We see you. This is tough, but important. Verse 7 is important because if we are asking God to do a new thing in us, uh, in our church, we need to, we, he needs to truly be the Lord of our life, truly be the one who's reigning and ruling in our hearts, in our minds, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. We need to take a look at our life. What might we be hoping in that will help us Go forward. What are we placing our hope in these days that might be on the throne of your, of your life? What are you trusting in? It might not be for us something like a carved idol, though that is the case for some people uh, around the world. I, uh, Pastor Holly and I were talking about this in some of my travels, I've spe- specifically in Asia. Uh, there's a practice in Buddhist countries that each house has a little idol in the backyard that they recognize and they go pray to and offer sacrifices. And that's the case for a number of different places and all different aspects of the world. So, but for us, that might, that we might not have those kinds of things in our lives, but, but what is it for us instead? What are we putting our hope in? Is it a particular idea or a political party or a, a person, an organization? Are you ambitious for something, thinking, if only I can get that? 
Some of the hard work that we might have to do today is to identify and acknowledge if we have any particular idols that we cling to. Over and over again, uh, in the Old Testament, the prophets, those who were God's spoke people, uh, uh, spokesmen and women, highlighted the folly of trusting anything that wasn't God or didn't follow God's ways. And like I said, humanity is really good at repeating its mistakes over time. Look at this from Jeremiah uh, chapter 10, verse 6, from the message version. It says this, All this is nothing compared to you, O God. You are wondrously, wondrously great, famously great. Who can fail to be impressed by you, king of the nations? It's your very nature to be worshipped. Look far and wide among the elite of the nations. The best they can come up with is nothing compared to you. And then he says this, I love this. Stupidly, they line them up. He's talking about idols. A lineup of sticks. They're literally sticks, right? Good for nothing but making a fire. (laughs) Gilded with silver, foil from Tarshish, covered with gold from Euphaz, hung with violet and purple fabrics. No matter how fancy the sticks, they're still just sticks. (laughs) I love it. But God is the real thing, the living and eternal king. I love how this text, this passage, makes what we can think is so important, nothing compared to God. (laughs) And it calls us back to enthroning God to that degree in our life. It reminds us, it reminds, the psalm reminds its readers to reconsider God's greatness in the midst um, of everything in our lives and to ask, have I put anything in God's place? The original readers of this psalm would have had this kind of moment of shock as they began to realize just how powerless their idols were when Yahweh approaches in judgment as king. Maybe there would have been an, oh wow, what am I doing kind of moment. Uh, a sense of, uh, of maybe embarrassment Because there's just no comparison between finite earthly things and the infinite creator God. Amen? Are we oriented in that same way? What might need some recalibration in your life this morning? I want to encourage you to lay bare your life before the Lord and be willing to ask, what have I been hoping in? What have I been trusting in that is not, that that is my own making? (laughs) This works as a powerful transition to the rest of the psalm. Verse 8 through 12 to the end of the psalm, it says, Jerusalem has heard and rejoiced, and all the towns of Judah are glad because of your justice, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are supreme over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods, and you who love the Lord hate evil. He protects the lives of the godly people and rescues them from the power of the wicked. Light shines on the godly and and joy on those whose hearts are right. May all who are godly rejoice in the Lord and praise his holy name. So at the beginning of this very last section here, we see a God who is working to put all things right. He is a God of justice. Uh, He hears his people. He protects his people. He rescues them from the power of the wicked. He shines his light on people and he gives them joy in their hearts, leading people to respond in worship like we did earlier today. Remember, one of the ideas that we've talked about that's important, that often, uh, that's often connected in, in, with the idea of justice in the Old Testament is the idea of shalom. And we won't, we've talked about that a lot, so I won't go through that all again, but the most basic meaning of shalom is that uh, what God is working toward is, is something that's whole and complete, everything made right for all things and all people in the end. 
Shalom is an important outcome of God's justice working in the world. And we see that at the end of this psalm here. Not only should we celebrate God as king because he's reigned and ruled from the beginning uh, or that he's overwhelmingly powerful, but we should also celebrate God because he is bringing a reign of justice and peace to all humanity and all creation through his reign. Nothing else can do that. (laughs) So as we come to a close... A primary interest of this psalm is to orient our hearts and minds to proclaim this core truth. The Lord is king. Can you say that today in faith, knowing that the Lord is truly reigning and ruling in your heart completely? And if not, there's some work to do, and that's okay. The Lord is gracious and and invites us to that hard work and helps us along the way. Amen? I'm so thankful for the Lord. But as we follow Jesus, our goal is to say the Lord is King. Jesus is Lord. Worship team, would you come on back up? This psalm dares to ask, is this true in your life? And it reminds us of the power and majesty of God he makes sure that we know that God reigns, that he works for justice, hearing his people, providing them, and even leading them to joy. Joy. And that's exactly what we see as the psalmist ends this, uh, this, this psalm with, with uh, verse 12 here. May all uh, who are godly rejoice in the Lord and praise his holy name. Let's pray together.